الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وبارك على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما Welcome everyone to episode 4 of Stories of the Awliya and today we look at the karamat of the Sahaba and before we get into them let's look at a couple points that sometimes people might notice that there are more karamats narrated about Muslims after the companions than the companions themselves which is you know, strange you think that if they're the closest to the messenger, peace be upon him, then they should have more karamat than everyone else. And the messenger himself should have more than them. Well, the Prophet ﷺ does have mu'ajizat. Uh, the difference between karamat and mu'ajizat is that a mu'ajizat is for a prophet, okay? And it comes with the claim of prophethood. And a karamat is for a non-prophet, and it does not come with the claim of prophethood. That's the only real distinction that's absolute. But oftentimes when we compare the karamat of the companions with everyone else, those after them, you find sometimes that the karamats of the companions are actually uh, a bit muted. They seem to be a bit muted uh, in comparison to the karamats of everyone else. And one of the reasons for that is that we oftentimes limit our understanding of karamats. So either there are certain things that are greater than karamats or that the definition of karamats should be broadened. And what I'm talking about in specifically, uh, specifically is istiqama and manfa, right? So istiqama is steadfastness on the deen. And it's well known the saying of the ulama, al-istiqama khairun min alfi karama. Okay, istiqama, to be steadfast on the deen over decades of life, is greater than any karama. I mean, what would you rather have? 60 years of consistently praying in masajin and avoiding kabair and never angering like your parents or having oppression of your uh, dependents, right? Like the family that you live in, live with. Or would you rather have all those and have 10 karamats at the same time? Well, karamat do not help you on your muqiyama. Okay? So having karamat is not, is not like having a good deed. So in that respect, either we hold that steadfastness is superior to a karama, or we can expand, as some ulama do, we can expand the definition of karamat to include steadfastness. That that is actually the biggest karama. Right? And if you look at the actual word karama, that it's... Allah being generous to someone. And what is greater generosity than um, steadfastness? Okay. And how about manfa, benefit to the people? Would you rather have 10 karamats or have saved 10 lives? Would you rather have uh, 10 karamats or one person entered Islam uh, on your behalf? Now, I've heard of the Prophet ﷺ saying that if Allah uses you to guide one, you know, we heard this hadith, if Allah uses you to, her, to guide one person to Islam, it is better than all of the dunya and what's in it. We know the Prophet ﷺ said this. This is the great virtue of being a cause of someone taking their shahada. Okay. What's great? I've never seen the Prophet ﷺ praise karamat. I've never seen a hadith in which the Prophet ﷺ says to receive one karama is greater than X, Y, and Z. Okay. So karamats are oftentimes they uplift our iman. But they're not necessarily the greatest things, but they're the most attention-getting, right? They grasp, they grab our attention, and they remind us directly, right, of Allah's qudra, His ability, and His presence. When we're, uh, when our attention is driven to His ability, then it's by default driven to His presence, right? And when we feel Allah's presence in our heart and it, it wakes up our minds, then we should act accordingly. Someone recently asked me, how do you know the difference between karama and istidraj, Okay. It's the answer is that a karama is followed by taqwa, increased taqwa, increased uh, uh, that our behavior is in line with the jama'ah of Muslims. When we say that, we mean the, the, the jama'ah of scholarship, that our, our, our practice of sharia is better, our taqwa is better, our focus on akhirah is greater than our focus on matters of this life, okay, of dunya. That's the result of witnessing a true karama or even having one happen okay, to oneself or the people around you. Whereas istidraj is when a miraculous occurrence happens to someone who's actually an evildoer, okay, someone publicly doing wrong, and yet you see this miraculous thing happening, right? Or what looks like immense generosity is being given to him. It's istidraj if the person continues after the occurrence of this event to be evil, to do sins openly, okay, and doesn't change. So what it is, a karama or istidraj, is going to be measured by the reaction afterward. Okay? Now back to what we're saying here. So we have istiqama and manfa. When it comes to the sahaba, they had far greater of both of these. Istiqama, steadfastness, and manfa, 
they benefited the people far greater than anyone else. I mean, they took the, 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 the they took iman to the farthest reaches of their world that they knew and were able to go to, right? And much of the core of the what we call the, the, the or what was always known as Darul Islam, the core of it uh, was lands that they went to in their time, and those lands are still Muslim, right? And still receiving guidance. So how many souls have been saved, and how much iman? Uh, uh, was there right because of their actions so that is far superior than anyone else so if you look at the karamat of uh, other awliyat that we talked about or sadahin that we that came in later generations and we're still going to talk about some right okay well don't compare the two the, the sahaba well the sahaba didn't have that so how could these later generations because the later generations are dwarfed right we're dwarfed in how we can benefit the ummah uh, in comparison to what the Sahaba did. So that's number one. Number two, someone may ask the question, well, how could people, Muslims, have karamat that the Prophet them never had? Okay. The Prophet himself never did certain things. And you tell me that some of these regular Muslims of later generations did them. The answer to that is that every karama that occurs to a Muslim, forget karama, every good deed that a Muslim does, okay, is in fact a fruit from the tree of the Prophet Right. Whatever we do that is you know, based in the deen, where did we get this deen from? So it's in fact, every believer and his good actions are a karama for the Prophet or they're in the scales of the Prophet or they're the result of the Messenger So nobody should, should compare and say, well, wait a second, you're saying that this happened to you? Well, it never happened to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Or are you saying that this happened to a Sahabi? It never happened to the Prophet. You shouldn't make that comparison because whatever happens to... Well, I mean... The, the, the amount of things that the Muslims have done themselves in benefiting the ummah, okay, it's a, we're talking about a millennium of benefit, is going is gonna to outweigh by, just by default of time of what the Prophet ﷺ did. But everything that the Prophet ﷺ, that a Muslim does is attributed to the Messenger of Allah ﷺ and is reflective of him, peace be upon him. So those are two questions that usually come up when we talk about karamat. All right, now that we've looked at that, those uh, issues, they're really good issues, meat and potato issues. Now let's get to the first karam. Now the first story occurred uh, to Abdurrahman ibn Abi Bakr and his father and his mother. Okay, Now, it was the case that there were people of Ahl al-Suffa. And Ahl al-Suffa were the poor Muslims who didn't have neither uh, parents in Medina, nor family in Medina, nor jobs. They were just made the hijrah, okay, and they didn't have anywhere to go. Oftentimes they were young men, okay. They were they were people who didn't have family, so they lived in the masjid, and the Prophet and his uh, wives took care of them. Now, one of the ways in which the Prophet took care of them is by dividing up their dinners, by saying after maghrib, "Who has food for three in their house? Take a fourth one. Who has food for one? Take a second one. Who has food for three, uh, five? Take a sixth one." Right, and he divided them up to go to the homes of the Sahaba and eat there. So this was common. This was not norm, abnormal. Abu Bakr Siddiq then uh, was one of the people who took ho- people home, and he took this time 10 men home. Okay, And he went with his older son, Abdurrahman, and they, they, these Ahl al were not like guests. right? This was a normal occurrence that happened all the time. So he said to Abdurrahman, he went, set them up, and he said, have dinner, okay? And I'm going to go and eat with the messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So Abu Bakr's wife and his son prepared a dinner, and Abu Bakr left. Abu Bakr stayed with the Prophet sallallahu and he valued his time with the messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, so much that uh, he ate dinner with the Prophet rather than eating at home with Ahl al-Sufa. When he did this, he prayed Aisha. He came home. He realized that nobody had eaten the food, and he said, "What's going on?" So he said to Abdurrahman, Abdurrahman, his son, actually went into another room because he knew Abu Bakr would be so, so upset that they didn't eat. And he said, uh, I tried to tell them to eat. They refused to eat as, uh, before you eat. Okay. And he became, Abu Bakr became so upset. He said, by Allah, I'm not touching this food. Okay. And then he encouraged them to eat. And they all ate. But then suddenly, as Abdurrahman later recounted, he said, by Allah, we would not take a morsel of the food except that more of it appeared from the bottom of the dish until everyone was satisfied. So they kept 
taking the food, and then while nobody was looking, they looked, and the amount of food had never changed. Okay, and there, there was the, at, at the end of the meal when everyone had eaten his food, he said there was more food there than there had been in the first place. This is actually a Bukhari and Muslim and Ahmed Bukhari Muslim and Ahmed narrate this as a hadith, actually. Right, so that you should know that how authentic this one is. Bukhari, Muslim, and Imam Ahmed all narrate this. Abu Bakr was so amazed, he turned to his wife and he said, Ya Ukhta Bani Faris. Or, uh, sorry, Ya Ukhta Bani Faras. What is this? Uh, a sister of Bani Faris, because that was her tribe. He said, what is this? She looked and he said, this is the delight of my eyes. In other words, it's like a miracle that I'm looking at here. Right? A karama that I'm looking at. It is indeed three times more now than it was when I served it. Okay. Then Abu Bakr realized that he had taken an oath that he won't eat the food, right? But uh, the food is obviously so blessed that it keeps multiplying like this, okay? So we know in the Quran tells us that if you make an oath, but then you find something better to do, then don't uh, allow you to, uh, don't, don't let that stop you. Don't let your oath stop you. So he then said, uh, uh, my oath to not eat this food was indeed from shaitan, right? And he, he ate from it. And he took the rest of the Prophet And then when the dish was with the Prophet there were a dozen people there. Okay. And they all uh, took and divided up the food. Okay. Took, they took, each take part of the contents of the dish and returned with a number of guests to share with them. So they all took some of the food and guests with them to eat from it. They did so, and everyone, Allah knows best how many there were in total at that point. They lost count because now you have all the people with Abu Bakr. Then Abu Bakr took it to the masjid. Then about a dozen people were there. They divided up the food, and they took more guests with them to eat. So Allah knows best how many people ate from that food. But initially, it was only enough for three or four people. The next story is a really beautiful story that has a lot in it. Right? Multiple karamat in one story. And it occurs after the Battle of Badr, when still the Muslims are being attacked and the Prophet ﷺ constantly must send sort of little troops, little groups on missions to make sure the area outside of Medina is safe. Now, many people don't realize that there weren't just like three, four battles. It was a constant state of attack against Medina in which the Prophet ﷺ would, would regularly send out a group to the north, a group to the east, and see what was going to make sure the city was safe. Okay, in one of these, and also people were becoming Muslim. Okay, uh, so they would need people to go teach them Islam, so to the different tribes. So now, one of the instances in which this took place, the Prophet ﷺ sent Asim ibn Thabit al Ansari, as well as sending Khubayb ibn Adi, Zaid ibn Dithinna. And, a, th- and a, a fourth person whose name is not mentioned in this narration. This narration, again, is from Al-Bukhari and Imam Ahmad, or narrated in both of these sources, so it's definitely one of the strong uh, stories that is well-known. Now, what happened was that they were found and they were discovered by another tribe. That tribe then uh, ratted them out okay, to another clan. And uh, to make a long story short, after a few days of traveling to do the mission which the Prophet ﷺ sent them on, they find themselves surrounded by 100 enemies. Okay, So one of them said, put your arms down, put your, put your uh, weapons down to the Sahaba, and we'll guarantee you safety. Now their leader, Asim ibn Thabit al-Ansari, he makes a decision. He basically does an ijtihad. And he basically says, I'm not, there's no way I'm trusting you. right? So uh, I'm putting up a fight. So he puts up a fight, and they kill him. His companions are looking on, and they say, okay, well, we're overpowered, and they make the opposite ijtihad. That's why I said this story has a lot in it, right? Not just karamats. So here you have a, one group of sahaba making two opposite decisions. So Asim ibn Thabit al-Ansari doesn't trust them, and that now the other three are going to trust them. So they're going to say, okay, well, we're stuck here. So they agree. And then... The, the fourth man that his name wasn't mentioned, as soon as this happens, they put their arms down. The first thing that happens is they tie them up, right? And he said, well, you just guaranteed us safety, and now you're tying us up, and I don't trust this. So he changes his mind, and he starts attacking them, okay? And then he's killed. So that leaves them now with two, all right? Khubayb ibn Adi and Zaid ibn ad They're now taken to Mecca. 
arms uh, uh, arms uh, clasped and, and tied and taken uh, to the slave market and sold. Now, the people who go to get them the, were people who had grievances against them from the Battle of Badr. Now, Khubayb ibn Adi okay, was at the Battle of Badr, and he was someone who killed Al-Harith, a man by the name of Al-Harith. Okay? So what happens? The, the sons of Al-Harith come and they, take, they buy him. They buy him so that they can get their revenge. Okay? So they imprisoned him for some few days before they decided what they're going to do with him. And in this few days, some amazing things happened and were recounted later on by the, one of the daughters of Al-Harith. Right? Also in the same household, uh, one of the daughters recounts some of the story. So he was being kept prisoner in the house. And then days are passing by, and prisoners have needs, and they sort of, you know, fulfilling the needs. And remember, they do know each other, right? So they all know each other from, from their time in Mecca together before Islam. So it so happens that there's sort of a lull in this little uh, uh, thing. And, and Hubayb asks the daughter if he could take care of his hygiene, right? So he asks her for a razor so that he could shave, you know, the hairs that he wanted to shave off his body, right? So it's basically a prisoner request. So one of the daughters then lends him this razor and he's taking care of himself and he's uh, doing that. Uh, some more time passes while he's doing that. One of her kids, like she lets his, her guard down because time has passed. But also when you're truly afraid of someone, you truly believe someone's really violent, you sort of never let your guard down. I mean, you would never let them alone in the house with, your, with uh, women and children alone in the first place. But they did which tells you that inside themselves, they sort of truly um, didn't fear them or as being vicious people. In any event, the daughter then, she has a child with a little toddler. The toddler walks away. Right? She notices later on, and she looks, and lo and behold, that daughter had walked up to Khubayb and was keeping Khubayb company, and Khubayb was talking to the little child and put the child on his lap while he's using the razor. Okay? Then she looks, and he looks at her, and she's like, and she's giving the, like, most hard look, okay, and horrified. And he looks at her, and he's, then he realizes, she, he doesn't know, and initially he doesn't know what's so upset, uh, why she's so upset. And then she, he realizes why she's so horrified, because he's supposed to be the enemy, okay, and he has a razor blade and her child on his lap with the razor blade in his hand. And then immediately, what does he do? I mean, this is really the tarbiyah of the Sahaba. Immediately, he doesn't use the child to get out. What does he do? Okay. Immediately, he, he, he says to her, Oh, you think I'm going to hurt your child? I'm not. I would never hurt your child. And he releases the child. Okay. He said, Are you afraid that I will kill him? Indeed, I would never do that. And he releases the child. And she later on recounts, and I believe as a Muslim, Okay, because most of these people became were young. Now, she's a mother of a, just a toddler, so she's young. And only in about a decade, most of the Meccans will become Muslim anyway. Okay, so she's probably relating it later on. And most of the karamat and the mu'ajizat that happened between Muslims and kafir, right? You know them because they were recounted later on. For example, Abu Jahl, when he admitted that we know Muhammad is a prophet. We know he's not making up this Qur'an, right? But we... Like his tribe, his clan, okay, the, and the prophet's clan, the Beni Hashim and the opposing clans that were rivaling them. He said, we were okay, uh, uh, racing against them in everything, and they were, out, they were beating us by everything. Like they had everything. We were always coming in second against them, okay? This is the later, to, this is like one of the forefathers of the Umayyad dynasty, right? Not as a Muslim, obviously he never became Muslim, but that's who he is, right? And uh, this is Abu Sufyan's uncle, basically. And he's basically, or he's basically, basically saying, we cannot beat them. We're always coming second to Beni Hashim. Okay? So now that they claim that they have a prophet, this is something we'll never be able to match. And the game will be over. We will never match them. So this is the reason he's opposing him. Now, how do we know this story? How do we know Abu Jahl said that? Okay? We said that because the man he said it to lived a longer life and became Muslim and then transmitted it and said it later on. So that's how we know what happened between a kafir and a Muslim, right? It's not that the kafir narrated it and we accepted it, 
uh, by kafir, I'm saying like the enemy, right? Because you might say, how do we know that what happened between the enemy and the Muslim? It's because later these enemies became Muslim and they transmitted what happened later on, okay, or beforehand. So she now says more about Khubayb. She said, he was an amazing prisoner. I would wonder at him. I would see him, despite being tied up in chains, he would be eating cool grapes, right? Bunches of cool purple grapes, right? That there was no way that they that he had that he got them, nor were they sold in the marketplaces of Mecca, right? But she used to say, indeed, this is nothing other than sustenance that Allah provided Khubayb with directly. So he had this karama that while he was in prison, he was being given. He he would have these grapes and he would eat them. Subhanallah. This is very similar to what we know that used to happen to Sayyidina Maryam. Okay. Now, when Quraysh took Khubayb out to the desert, another thing that we learned from this story is that Khubayb, he said, permit me to pray two rakahs before you execute me. And he permitted him, uh, they permitted him to do so. And he said, I would elongate these two rakahs, but I don't want you to say that I'm afraid of death. I'm not afraid of death. And he was the one who established the sunnah that before you are executed, before a Muslim is executed, he prays two rakahs. So this is another example of something that, wait, is, wait a second, is this two rakahs from the Prophet Did the Prophet do this? So this is actually one of the evidences and proofs that you know, as long as the matter itself is not an innovation, like praying to rakas is not an innovation, but the timing of it and making that, you know, something that becomes a sunnah for us, really, if you think about it, um, that's something that Sahaba did. As Sayyidina Abu ba- uh, Bilal, sorry, did the same thing. Sayyidina Bilal, he said that in Islam, he came in contact with water more than any other time because, number one, the Muslims freed him, like Abu Bakr Siddiq freed him. And number two, with wudu, Right was something that they was required now. So everyone was sharing their wudu, their water, so that people could make wudu. So now he was like touching water all the time, which was something very rare before Islam. So he established something, which is that pray, he would pray two rakahs after every wudu. Okay, after making wudu, and the Prophet ﷺ said, "O Bilal, it is as if I hear your footsteps in paradise." So why is Allah basically saying, you know, why you? Is there something that you do that is unique, right? And Bilal said, uh, uh, says, the only thing different is that after every wudu, I thank Allah by praying two rakas. right? So that's something that also becomes a sunnah for us to do, right? Becomes something that we can do. Also, many other examples where the Sahaba, they recognize that there's some room we could do things, right? It's not something just that uh, we just have to see if, if it already happened, is the only way we can worship Allah. All right. So this is one of one of the examples. Okay. So Khubayb then uh, was making dua, and we have another hadith about this from Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan, that he said, "When did Islam iman truly enter his heart? When did he know that this religion is true?" He said, "I was still a child in Mecca, and we were about to kill Khubayb." And Khubayb began uttering some dua. Okay? And my father, Abu Sufyan, took me and pushed me down and behind him. Okay? Why? So that none of the dua would affect his son. Right? As if the dua was coming out in like rays that you could block the dua by putting uh, his son behind his back. And Muawiyah, he was a very intelligent man, even as a boy, and he said, well, I realized my father believes in these du'as, right? So, I mean, if it was a, if it was nonsense, okay, and if a Hindu comes and says making du'a against you, it's like, okay, you can call on your idols all you want. It's not going to bother me. I'm not gonna, I couldn't really care less. If you, if you go and um, call upon your idols to destroy me, I couldn't care less. But he obviously cares, right? Okay, he obviously believed in them. So Muawiyah ibn Abi Sufyan said, at that moment I knew Islam was actually true and that my father was just being obstinate. Right, for the sake of leadership and power, etc. So that was an amazing uh, uh, situation there. And it continued on that earlier on, when the mission had gone as- uh, awry, Asim, the leader, Asim ibn Thabit, had stated that, uh, O oh Allah, inform your messenger of what is happening. Okay? And the Prophet wasallam had learned and he had informed the Sahaba of what to do. Okay? He had informed the Sahaba of what to do. Uh, to go get his body. 
okay, because they've been killed. So they went to get his body. Next, at the same time, so now we're shifting from Khubeib back to Asim. At the same time, the enemies that Asim had made during the Battle of Badr had heard that Asim was, being, was killed. One of them said, I want the satisfaction, okay? I want, a sa- I want the satisfaction of seeing that Asim has been killed. So go and cut up part of his body that we can know that Asim was killed. So basically the family of some people that he had killed in the Battle of Badr. Okay? So they went to, to, get the, to, to, to cut up part of his body and bring it back. But lo and behold, what did they find? They found bees surrounding his body. So that not only were they able to touch him, cut him up, they were not even able to approach him. And when the Sahaba came to take his body and bury him properly, the bees went away. So this is one of the narrations that comes in Bukhari and Ahmad about the great karamat that used to happen in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and his companions. This next one is beautiful too and it also has a lot of lessons in it. And this is why the method of education in the Quran is actually through stories. Because stories, they carry so much in them. And it's a lot easier to... Um, identify with an individual, uh, right, and a character that you're rooting for than it is with a thesis, right? It's like so someone starts with a thesis of an idea and then co- goes to support that idea. Well, I mean, the thesis, is, we're human beings. Like, we like to attach ourselves to other human beings whom we love uh, more so than ideas. So this, uh, the method of teaching is always stories. And this story has so much benefit in it, it's unbelievable. It's also narrated by Bukhari and Muslim. That Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and the people of Kufa had a falling out. Okay, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas was the ruler or the governor appointed by Umar bin Khattab during his Khilafah to rule over the people of Kufa. Now, what was Kufa? Kufa was a military garrison city. The idea of it was Umar bin Khattab's. He said that we have so much activity in the north that we should actually establish a city for the troops that are there and their families. There should be a masjid, a marketplace and actually establish it as a residence, okay? So he appointed Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas and Salman al-Farisi, who knew the, the area, to go find an area of land, a patch of land, that was as similar to the Arab uh, climate as possible. So they went and they found this flat area, a sandy area, that was v- very similar to the Arab's climate that they could uh, live in. And they went, but the, and they established the city of Kufa. Okay, and Kufa is a word, it's a description of the land, okay? It's like one of the descriptions of the land. I can't even remember what it means. It's like flat and dry or something like that. Uh, in any event, they, the, the soldiers are now told, you're now actually going to settle here permanently. You bring your families and you'll settle here. Now, there's something about the Kufans from the start. It's almost as if, you know, when you're traveling, you're antsy, Right? You're not yourself when you're traveling. You, you just get exhausted. You're tired. You wish you'd go back home. Now, imagine you're a soldier, and you're out, and you're sort of antsy and tired. You want to go back home. And remember, at this time, the bulk of the soldiers are no longer Sahaba, right? The bulk of, of soldiers are now uh, second-generation Muslims. They never met the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, okay? And they're soldiers, and um, now they're told, you're actually moving here. So your wi- wives and children will come up to you and this is your new home. From the beginning, the temperament of the Kufans is one of irritability and almost like it's a, a population that is constantly in an unstable mood, in a bad mood. Like the uh, people of Kufa, which are also just termed Ahlul Iraq, the people of Iraq, because that was the city of Iraq, the Arab city or the Muslim city in Iraq. The rest of Iraq was comprised of you know, like non-Arabs, right? So they're, they're there and... Over time, throughout the history, you're going to find stories from the people of Kufa. Remember, these are the people who betray. These are the same people who betrayed Sayyidina Hussein. Okay, so their temperament is not trustworthy. So much so that Abdullah bin Omar, Abdullah bin Abbas, many others had told Sayyidina Imam Hussein, "Do not trust them. Okay, don't bank on Ahlul Kufa. Okay, they're not trustworthy. Why? Because they developed this reputation over time." Now, one of the things that happened was that there was too many problems between them and their governor, 
Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. So Sayyidina Umar, he replaced him with Ammar ibn Yasir, the early Muslim from Mecca who was tortured. Okay, Sumaya was his mother. Yasir was his uh, father. They were the first martyrs. Sumaya was the first martyr in Islam. His father was a second martyr in Islam. So Ammar ibn Yasir was a very, very special Sahabi. He was from the poor class and one of the early Muslims. Okay, So it was Omar's way, and it's noted in the books that Omar was quick right, to make a, ch- a change. He did not allow things to stagnate. He did not allow the waters to uh, get murky. He did not allow for a status quo that he didn't like, that was no good. Like you notice some, some managers, some, a situation will be bad. They take no action. It drives you insane, right? If things are not going right, they're so slow to act. And there's a saying that they say, that speed never slumps. If you want to avoid going into a slump, make change quickly, right? Don't allow the status quo that's not working to take root and to settle in, right? There are many people in the name of being reasonable or the name of being let measured, okay? They allow and they give people like their managers or their, in this case, it's the governor. Give them a chance. Give them a second chance. Give them a third chance, Okay. Uh, what you're actually allowing is a culture of failure and a culture of losing and a culture of non-success to settle. And it becomes a mentality. It becomes something that we all get used to, right? Well, Sayyidina Umar never allowed this, and he was very quick with the yank. So he used to pull immediately a governor. It's not working. Pull him immediately. Don't wait, okay? And he sent in his place Ammar ibn Yasir. Now, lo and behold... What happens next? They're complaining about Ammar. Complaining that he doesn't pray properly. Okay? So Sayyidina Umar is almost laughing at this. Okay? But what does he do? He calls Ammar ibn Yasir in for a meeting. And he used to call the meetings all the time with his, his, his governors. But he used to call him and he said to him, uh, the people of Kufa seem to be unsatisfied with your salah. So explain. How do you pray? And he called him, Ya Abu Ishaq. Or yeah, uh, yeah, Abba Ishaq. When you say when you have a idafa construction, this is a little bit of grammar here, and you call upon them by saying yeah, which is harf uh, nida, the idafa takes on a nusb. So you don't say yeah, Abu Ishaq. You say yeah, Abba Ishaq. You said yeah, Abba Ishaq. In other words, saying that he's basically telling him, I have to ask you this as more of a formality than I really doubt your salah. Right? Uh, I have no doubt about your salah. So tell them how you lead the prayer. He said, I lead the prayer. Exactly the same way the Messenger وسلم, led the prayer. You recite the surah in the first two rakahs and shorten the other two rakahs, right? Exactly how the Prophet prayed. He said, that's what I thought about you in the first place, uh, Omar said, reassuringly. Then he sent Ammar back, but he did something very unique. Okay, He sent with Ammar a number of men to conduct a survey in Kufa on the feelings of the people towards their governor. So, number one, it tells us a couple things. First of all, that you don't just govern, you know, like, as if you own the land. There needs to be a, a good relationship between the governor and the governed. How amazing is this? Now, you'd think Omar ibn Khattab said, okay, this is the governor and that's it. Whether you like it or not, deal with it, right? No, it's not. He actually sent people to see that the, the population, the populace, the governed, the subjects need as well to be satisfied and have goodwill towards their governor, right? It's not just like a one-way street. Okay, so that's the amazing part in the first place. Secondly, here it is, they're friends, Omar bin Khattab and Ammar bin Yasir, but he has no shame to say, like, I need to do a survey on how you're doing, right? So he separated clearly between Ammar as a Sahabi, Ammar as his personal friend, and now Ammar as, I don't want to say employee because it's not the right word, but as employee, as a um, inferior in the hierarchy, right? So now we're going to have to uh, conduct this investigation. Right, or this survey. So these men proceeded to go around every uh, masjid. Right, how did he conduct the surveys? By going around to all the masjid. Now, there was always, the way uh, masjid were, is that there was always one central mosque, just like in Medina. The Kufa was built just like Medina. One central mosque. The governor lives right next to the mosque or attached to the masjid. That's where he, he's, he, he lives and he conducts his business. The army is also uh, there as well. Around the masjid is the marketplace, and around the marketplace is the homes, and around the homes are the, the suburbs, which are the farms. Anything that required a lot of land, right, like orchards or animals or something, that was 
outside in the almost like um, like in England they have zone one, zone two, zone three. So zone one is the masjid and the governor. Zone two is the marketplace. Zone three is the homes. Zone four is the suburbs where you had farms and these anything that required a lot a, a, a big swath of land. He goes there, and around those areas, there are little mosques. So the farmers especially, their land is so big that they oftentimes don't make it to the central mosque. So there are many little masajid all throughout, except that they don't hold Jum'ah. Jum'ah has to happen in the main central mosque. So these inspectors, they go around to all of the mosques of the city. They wait for the prayer time, okay? And then they talk to the people individually uh, or in little groups about what they felt, how they felt about their governor. Right, and see if they brought us some objective claims. Okay, now these emissaries then went and found all good reviews from Ammar ibn Yasir. However, one man stood up. Okay, his name was Usama ibn Qatada, and he was from the Bani Abs clan. So the the way that they lived was also they lived by with the families. So the clans lived together, like in, in little clusters. So the the masjid of the Bani Abs clan. Okay. At that mosque, Osama ibn Qatada stood up, he said, and since you are, he said, since you're allowing us to speak, right, now let me talk to you about Sa'd, the previous governor. Okay, let him tell you why we didn't like him. He said Sa'd would never join the military campaigns. Okay, so he would send us out, but he wouldn't go himself. Now, is that, is that permissible in Sharia? Not only is it permissible, it's the sunnah established by Sayyidina Ali once the matter gets big. Right, so Sayyidina Ali is the one who told Sayyidina Umar. He said, when in the battle of the Persians, Sayyidina Ali saw Umar about to go and prepare himself for battle because this is going to be a huge battle. Sayyidina Ali said, no, 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 that was in the time of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. But now, right, we're like political entities. This is not just tribes fighting tribes and families fighting families. This is we're now a political entity. If you go down, this entire complicated. Uh, political body now will suffer a major earthquake, right? Uh, and become destabilized. So you must stay now. You're the head. You must stay and issue out uh, um, your soldiers. So Sayyidina Ali established that sunnah. There's another example of Sayyidina, of the Sahaba using their intellects and based on the principles they know. So, yes, is it uh, good for the leader to fight alongside his people? Of course it's good, right? He lifts their morale and he's sort of sacrificing the way they are, but what's the harm? The harm is now this complicated and large, and you have east, west, north, and south, Khilafah is now going to be destabilized. So that outweighs okay, the other thing. So Sa'd staying and not going was not necessarily wrong. Okay, so what's the next thing he says? He distributes public wealth unfairly. So there's public wealth. There's a lot of different types of public wealth. Taxes that come in from conquest, for example. Spoils of war. Okay, uh, zakah money. It's all public wealth. Furthermore, he was not fair when he pronounces judgments. He's a bad judge. When Sad heard about what the man had accused him of, okay, the word went around to the whole city that this accusation is on Sad. He said, "By Allah, okay, if yours, oh Allah," he said, uh, "if this slave of yours, if this man, was lying." And stood up only to be seen and heard, okay, and to attack me, my personal reputation, right, to attack me, okay. So in other words, he's saying, he's not saying that if these things are true, okay, that is almost like is either a non-issue or is not necessarily, he's not attacking someone because they put forth a grievance. That's not the issue, so that no one should think that. But he said, if he is doing this as a lie, right, and he knows it's a lie, and he just wants to be famous for attacking me, okay? Then I will pronounce upon him three things. And we know that, by the way, Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas, Prophet guaranteed his du'a. He said, prolong his life. Give him a long life. Prolong his poverty and cause him to be faced with temptations and trials. So have you ever seen life is, you know, miserable, wretched, and short? You ever seen this, th that type of phrase? Right? And the question is, wait a second, if it's short, then how miserable can it be? Right? But this one, Sad, is saying the opposite. He says here, prolong his life and then fill him with misery in that life. That man later on, okay, uh, narrators later on state that Osama ibn Qatada 
in fact, did live a long life in Kufa. But the people, right, and they all knew that this was the dua of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas. He grew very poor, had very little family to take care of him. He was so old that his eyebrows began to droop over his eyes. Okay, That's how old he was. And he was sort of blind, but he, was, he would see enough to be able uh, to move around. And he would be seen chasing girls. Just like Sayyidina Umar said, the fitna. I mean, say, uh, uh, Sayyidina Sa'ad, he said, accost him, let him be accosted with temptations he, uh, or suffer temptations. He would be seen trying to pinch the girls in Kufa, okay? Or wink at them and touch them and talk to them, and they would be disgusted from him, right? As like old, like creepy, uh, you know, guy. So, and he, sat, he himself has said, I have been, I have been uh, uh, touched and afflicted by the supplication of Sa'ad. So he knew exactly what it was. Now, someone says, well, how mean? Right? Well, it's not necessarily mean because when that happens, that's the kafara. You go on Yom Al-Qiyamah and khalas, you've, you've paid your price. When, when you anger a wali and you suffer in this life, maybe that might be the end of your suffering. Uh, you may have paid the price. Right? And, and that's the price that Sa'ad wanted to pay. So on Yom Al-Qiyamah, he won't find this against him. And we'll find rather that it will be ikhwanan ala sururi mutaqabileen wa naz'ana ma fi sudurihim min ghil ikhwanan ala sururi mutaqabileen then the believers will come on yawm al-qiyamah without any anger towards one another they will have been people who fought in this life but it's all rectified now and there's no longer any rancor between them in the next life and they'll be in paradise together so that's the sort of happy ending to it but we did see that Saad's dua was answered on the man who attacked him The next story is of Sa'id ibn Zayd. Sa'id ibn Zayd is one of the ten guaranteed paradise. He's one of the early, early Sahaba. And he was uh, related to Umar ibn Khattab. And he was the husband of his sister at the same time. He was like a, a distant cousin. Uh, or actually, not very distant cousin. But he was also his brother-in-law. Okay, And he was there the day that he took his shahada. And he came knocking. And it was his wife that Umar ibn Khattab, which is his sister, struck Okay, it was almost struck his sister, and then uh, she, when she had answered him back, okay, and he felt so bad about that that he went, took a she told him, go take a shower, come back, then you could recite and, and see what I'm reading here. And then he did that, and he read a few verses of Quran, and immediately Iman entered his heart, and he realized it was true. So that's, that's Sa'id ibn Zayd. Now, way after the time of Sa'id ibn Zayd, he had a land dispute with a woman named Arwa bint Aus ibn al-Hakam. Okay. So Marwan, who is, her, this would be almost like his niece. Okay. Arwa was the niece of Marwan. This is also a Bukhari and Muslim hadith, by the way. She accused him wrongfully of stealing her land. There was a piece of land that they were, there was a dispute over. And she actually stole it to, from him and accused him of stealing it from her. That saying that this was actually my land all along, okay, and Saeed stole it from me. So now, yes, these are Sahaba. Yes, they couldn't care less about a piece of land, but they do care about oppression. And and what human being? The Prophet ﷺ did not make these Sahaba into these numb people that ha, that are not normal, where the land gets stolen. Okay, halas, uh, we're going to Akhirah anyway. No, this is not how they acted. There was normalcy in the Sahaba, and you see it here. Sa'id ibn Zayd was so hurt and so angry, upset about this oppression. Okay, So Marwan, he then proceeds to ask Sa'id about her accusation. And he says, you think I would wrongly take land after the Prophet said whoever wrongly takes the hand span, right? even the hand span of land. That means when you're doing the borders, when you're putting borders down, even a hand span. If you wrongly take even a hand span, okay, then seven earths will swallow that person on the day of judgment, okay, and they'll be up into to their necks in earth, all right, drowning in earth, okay, uh, on the day of judgment. Marwan said, after saying this, I will not ask you for any other proof, okay, halas. But nonetheless, the lady took the land, okay. So Saeed said, Oh Allah, if she is lying, then Make her lose her eyesight. In other words, if you lost sight of Yom Al-Qiyamah, so lose your eyesight here. Like you lost sight that you're going to meet Allah. 
And Allah always refers to the oppressors as being blind, all right? Blind in this life, blind in the next life. So he said, make her lose her sight and cause her to die on her own land. Okay. Arwa did eventually grow old, lose her sight, and one night when she was walking on that very piece of land, she fell into a ditch and died. Okay. And again, when uh, Wali pronounces something upon you, that's the justice. Now on Yom Al-Qiyamah, she goes uh, with a clean slate. Right? Khalas, she's paid her price, paid with her life. Right? But this is, this is how sort of normal the Sahaba were in the sense that they didn't have this type of spirituality which put them in a lala land where this is not a normal person anymore, not getting upset about anything, halas, right? So you do find that the Sahaba were uh, uh, very, they retained their desire for justice and they didn't like to see injustices. And who's going to train people better than the Messenger of Allah Now think about this. When a person is permissive of an injustice, I actually believe that most of the time, it's out of weakness, out of fear of confrontation. So let's find something spiritual to justify my fear of confrontation. That's one thing. Uh, but also you have to look at something might affect others too. So you should be upset about an injustice that even if it's to yourself, fine, you can forgive. But what if it's for others? So for example, a guy comes, beats me up. And I say, okay, khalas, I forgive. But wait a second. You haven't changed society. That man will go beat up someone else now, Right. Or let's say at the cash register, someone discriminated against me because uh, I'm a Muslim. Well, khalas, alhamdulillah. Yeah, but that person's now going to go discriminate against the next person too. So you haven't, you've actually, you're letting oppression continue. And I really do believe that it's the bulk of people, they want to just have this forgive attitude and dress it in spirituality. When in fact, what it is is weakness. If you truly want spirituality, spirituality and forgiveness and this, this magnanimity it only is really valid after you have control over a situation and you're able to punish someone. Then you say, no, no, for, now I forgive you, right? Like, halas, okay, he's arrested. He's about to get the death penalty or he's about to get some punishment. Then you interfere and say, no, no, halas, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine enough. Justice has been served. I don't want to see him getting hurt. Okay. So that's where forgiveness comes up. You forgive someone, okay, when justice hasn't even been served. What are you forgiving then? Right? And there was no, you, go, you can wait until Yom Al-Qiyamah and when you see that you need his hasanat to make it to paradise, then you can forgive him and see how, you, how forgiving you are then. Right? So in order for forgiveness to be some genuine thing, there needs to be justice first. And you need power. Right? Just like humility is oftentimes misconstrued. So someone's so humble. But wait a second. You're not humble. You're meek. Humble, someone so, uh, so it's just simple life, very poor, nothing going, so humble. That's not humble, that's meek. Humble is you need to have something to be humble about. Humble is a guy who, with a ton of achievements, comes in a luxury car, surrounded by workers, surrounded by people, then a, a stranger comes and wants to talk to him and he gives him as much time as he wants. That's humble. Humble, humility requires something to be humble about. So these two things, like humility and forgiveness, they're oftentimes misplaced, right? Unless someone misunderstand these stories of the Sahaba, that they, uh, they didn't have this forgiveness or other things. They, they love justice. They understood the value of justice uh, before anything else. The next story is Jabir ibn Abdullah. Okay, Jabir ibn Abdullah tells a story about his father. And he says that, when the battle of Uhud was about to take place, my father, who was Abdullah al-Ansari, called me in and he said, son, I believe that I will be one of the first companions killed tomorrow. This is sort of like an ilham that he had. Okay. He said, I believe I will be one of the first people killed tomorrow. Okay. And after Allah and his messenger, all right, I love nobody more than you. No one is more dear than you. So I have a debt to pay, this is my debt, etc., etc., etc. So repay it, and here's the money. Do, do, do. Gives them the money. You have brothers, so-and-so, take care of your brothers. You have these children, these uh, sisters, take care of these sisters. Okay. The morning finally came, says Jabir, and my father was the first to be killed. I then buried him after the battle, 
and we were burying people in they were burying people in pairs because there's so many deceased so we, I buried my father and alongside him someone else okay. I felt somewhat uneasy over this for a period of six months until I finally decided to take him out of the grave so we, we learn here and by the way this is another classic example of fiqh yeah, yeah, you may think that, okay, yeah, so it's allowed in fiqh. Yeah, but you still need to double-check with the madhahib. Because this is one piece of evidence. How do you know that a hadith never came down after this event prohibiting it? You don't know that. So this is an example where you read a story, you clearly see a fiqhi ruling based upon it, permissibility of exhuming a body, okay? And you immediately make a judgment that it's permissible to exhume a body because Jabir ibn Abdullah exhumed his father six months after he buried him. But wait a second, you can't, you may be right, you may be wrong. You, you need to confirm by going to the four madhabs and seeing if there was another hadith that came down prohibiting it later on. You don't know that, okay? So uh, you can't make a judgment. This is a, a classic example and a great example of where someone might make immediate snap judgment that because Jabir did it, that is permissible. But wait a second, you didn't, you're leaving out the rest of the sirah. You're really leaving out, Battle of Ahad happened when? The third year after the hijrah. There's seven years of sirah to go. There could have been rules delivered or revealed all right, or made by the Prophet ﷺ afterwards. So that's it. This is an example of that. He then said, when I opened the grave, or when he uh, dug the grave, I found his body to be exactly as it was on the day I placed him inside the grave, except for his ear. Okay? I then placed him alone in another grave. This is narrated by Bukhari. And uh, it's narrated by Al-Hakim. Here's another amazing story about exhuming of the bodies. This one we find in the Muwatta of Imam Malik. Imam Malik reported that Amr ibn al-Jamuh and Abdullah ibn Amr al-Ansari both were martyred during the Battle of Badr. They shared a single grave. Okay. Because their grave was close to a nearby flood, the people decided to excavate their bodies and bury them in a safer location so that floodwaters wouldn't unearth them and, and leave them above the ground. When they were removed from their grave, the people were startled to see that their bodies had not changed in the least. It was as if they had died the day before, despite the fact that they had actually died 46 years earlier. One of the two had his hand placed over an injury. So when someone took his hand off his injury and placed it along his sides, as normally people are buried, the hand by itself re returned to the place of the injury. This is from the Muwatta of Imam Malik. The next one is about Usaid ibn Hudayr and Abad ibn Bishr. And it's narrated that they were with the Prophet ﷺ and they stayed until after Salat al-Isha, so it became very dark. And there was no moon out on that night. It was a dark night. Right before the beginning of the new month. Anas ibn Malik was there. Okay? And he said, they walked together towards their home. And it was as if there was something like a lamp hovering above them that was lighting the way. Then when the two parted, each taking their own path to go to their respective neighborhood, that light as well split and parted with them. And they traveled home safely through that light. This is narrated in Sahih al-Bukhari. He actually narrates this twice. And Imam al-Bukhari is known to take hadiths and narrate them in different places based upon the different lessons that uh, they can serve. The next story is an amazing one about Tamim al-Dari. You know, Tamim was a Christian who had an amazing thing happen to him and that we benefit greatly from is that as a Christian, he narrated, he said that he was on a ship of people, and that ship played with the, they were in the ocean, played with them for 40 days and 40 nights until they came upon an island. And on this island, there they saw the Dajjal. There they saw this um, beast, and then they saw this creature, and this person, they said, who had certain, certain attributes, and had exact description of the Dajjal. And that he said, he, the Dajjal asked, did this happen, did this happen, did this happen? And he said, when these things happen, then I'm going to be released. Okay. Now, Tamim ended up, he was a man of Medina. Uh, uh, he was not Muslim yet. So he entered, he was in Medina, 
and he saw the Messenger he went into the masjid, someone brought him into the masjid and said, tell this story to the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet will explain to you exactly what happened. So he did tell the story to the Messenger in front of everyone, and the Prophet confirmed every piece of the story and said, I love to hear the truth coming from other than me. In other words, if a Muslim had said this, well, the Muslim have already heard about the Dajjal and may have sort of wanted to see what his uh, what his mind wanted him to see. His eyes would have seen what his mind wanted him to see, right? But here you have someone who never heard of any of this telling the story in front of all the Sahaba, and the Prophet said, confirmed it. Now, he, he's called Tamim al-Dari because he, he's the first person to come up with this idea of lighting the masjid, putting uh, oil lamps in the masjid. So Tamim al-Dari is literally a nickname to mean the lighter of the house, right? So he's the one who lit the house. Now he has another story that in the time of Umar ibn Khattab, a fire erupted in one of the suburbs of Medina called Al-Harra. Okay? And the fire um, was feared that it would ex- it, uh, it destroy the homes in that area. So it hadn't yet hit the homes. Now Umar ibn Khattab said to Tamir and Dari, go extinguish the fire. So Tamim was nervous though. He said, who, how am I going to do this? I, who am I to do it? I don't know how to do it. Right? There's no water. There's nothing. How would I do this? Umar ibn Khattab continued to talk to him, give him confidence, exhort him. And finally, Tamim capitulated and acquiesced to Umar's request. So he then went to the fire, okay, and how did Tamim put out this fire? He began reciting some words and pushing, making pushing motions with his hands. And the fire would sort of be driven away by his hands until he kept pushing it away and away and away until they went into between a thin mountain pass, okay, where it would, that no people would be hurt and the fire would just die out by himself. Meanwhile, Omar was looking at this in amazement and said, the one who sees something like this is not like the one who doesn't see it. The one who sees something is not like the one who doesn't see it. The one who sees something like this is not like the one who sees it. And this was narrated by Al-Bayhaqi in Dala'il al-Nubuwa. This story happens for the generations right after the Sahaba. Abu Sabr al-Nakha'i reports that while a man was coming here from Yemen, he had fought in some of the battles for the Muslims and he was on his way up. When he trailed behind his people, the, the rest of the soldiers, and his donkey died, and he was stuck in the middle of the desert. There was no way he could catch up to his people. And that happens all the time when you're traveling in the desert. Someone gets left behind, and no one realizes it. Well, he got left behind, and now, lo and behold, he's about to die because there's no donkey. Okay. He then puts up his hand, makes wudu with the water that he has. He prays two rakas, and he utters the following dua. He says, Oh Allah. I have indeed come from a dafina, which is a place, striving in your way, in other words, fighting, seeking your pleasure, and I bear witness that you indeed give life to the dead and resurrect those who are in their graves. Do not allow any created being to make me indebted to him by saving me today. In other words, if someone saves me today, saves my life, I'm indebted to him for life. I don't want to be indebted for life to, 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 to someone. Okay, how do I know I might be indebted to someone that's you know, no good? And it's not good to be indebted. And to be indebted to save someone's life, you sort of owe them everything, right? So he said, I ask you today to resurrect my donkey. He said, immediately upon the end of this dua, the donkey immediately rose from its prone position, okay? And he covered it. Uh, he put his saddle back on it again and then carried on. When he said, what ha- when he reached his companions later on, he sa- they said, what happened? Where were you? And he told them the entire story. And that's how we get the narration. All right, we'll stop here. Inshallah, we will come back and continue reading from Sifat al-Safwa, which was the, the, this book of Karama narrations by Ibn al-Jawzi of Baghdad, the great scholar who, who wrote Sifat al-Safwa. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta. Nastaghfiruk wa natubu ilayk. Wal asr inna al-insana lafi khusr. Illa al-ladhina amanu wa aminu al-salihat. Wa tawasaw bil-haq. Wa tawasaw bil-sabr. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Rabbi habli